Please do not message or call, as the following programme is a rerun of a previous live show. Any announcements made during the repeat may now not be applicable. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back people to the Ask Your Lawyer show. I am your host, Atik Malik, Director of Liberty Law Solicitors. And welcome. It's 2019. It's been a while since I've been on here um, hosting the show myself. I thought, you know, it's good to give others um, an opportunity also to uh, learn and for you to hear fresh voices and fresh ideas. You know, it's not always good to just keep doing it yourself. So we've sort of mixed it up now for the last few months of 2018. We had a whole variety of different people, new faces, uh, new voices um, on the show. And I hope uh, all of you have enjoyed that. So kicking off 2019, um, I'm here today doing one of my classic toolkit shows. Uh, a toolkit show is a show where I give an analysis on an area of law. We have no guests in the studio, no panelists on the phone. It's just, it's just me and you. A one-on-one conversation about a hot topic or a concerning area of law, an area of law that concerns our community, which I feel, um, and others also I'm sure feel, that the community needs some education on. And today we are going to be starting 2019 by discussing a terrorism law. Yes, that's right, terrorism law. I mean, why are we discussing terrorism law uh, today on uh, Inspire FM? Well, the reason being is as we speak, there is legislation going through Parliament which will make terrorism legislation, which is already in its many forms quite questionable. There are lots of commentators and activists and groups out there which are concerned of the current state of anti-terror legislation on human rights. And yet we are now at a peak where in the horizon we can see further changes taking place in anti-terror legislation, further changes which could have huge impacts on communities in this country. And its impact um, it will be far wider than just the Muslim community. I'm confident that initially, yes, we will see an impact on um, people of colour, uh, and in particular the Muslim community. But from the examples that I will give today during the show, I am hope you will see why when there are concerns about human rights, it is precisely that. It is what it says on the tin. These are concerns of human rights, rights that affect all humans in this country, all people in this country. It might start off by affecting one pocket of the community, such as Muslims or Christians or black people or brown people. But in the long term, when laws that are highly controversial, if I say it, may say it, may put it like that, are allowed to exist and continue as they gain momentum and they evolve and they change, sooner or later they affect everybody. And so this is why when we see an injustice, we should always stand for it or stand against it even, not simply because it affects us, but because it affects others. When something affects others, there's a good chance that sooner or later it will affect us. And it's no good only standing up when it affects you, because if that is the only time that you will stand for justice, the likelihood is that by the time you decide to stand for justice, um, 
it's too late, to be quite frank. So let's start with um, the uh, toolkit show. Before I do, uh, just to remind everybody, this is a live show. We're on Facebook right now, and I'm going to hold my phone up right here. Um, and this is the Inspire FM Facebook page. The advantage of this uh, Facebook page is that not only can you hear um, what is being discussed in the studio, but you can see it as well live. You can post messages on here live. You can contact us in the studio the old-fashioned way on 01582481822. That's 01582481822. You could also message us um, on the studio on 0779481822. That's 0779481822. And as you can see, that's me on there. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to share this live uh, onto my Facebook page. So anybody on there can also see it and you can interact from there uh, also. Um, so you have a number of ways of contacting us, phone, Facebook Live. You can also go on the website. You could also um, uh, listen and view from the website, as I understand it, um, as well as, as I said, uh, call in. Okay, so where do we start with anti-terror uh, laws? Well, a lot of people will say, well, it doesn't affect me. I'm not an extremist. How can it affect me? Well, picture this. You are going on holiday and you're with your family. You've done nothing wrong. You've just planned an amazing holiday, an amazing trip away. And then you're stopped at the airport. And when you're stopped at the airport, uh, you're asked a series of questions and you're taken into a room. And you are really confused. You can't figure out why you have been selected to be spoken to. And then you ask questions and you've seen on TV situations where people are asked questions by police and they go and they say no comments, no comments to every question and, and they walk out. But in this situation, you're told that if you do say no comment, then you are committing a criminal offence. And that confuses you even more. You're asked for your phones, for your laptops, the pins to those. And again, you're told by the police that if you do not provide that information you're committing a criminal offence. But you're clearly concerned because you have a lot of personal information, personal photographs or data of you and your family on your laptop or your mobile, which you do not want strangers looking at. And you don't understand why this is happening to you because you haven't done anything wrong. You're not a criminal all you're doing is going on a family holiday in half term. And yet, you're having to jump through all of these hoops. So why is that? Why is this happening? Is it true that if you do not answer any questions, you could be potentially committing a criminal offence? Is it true that if you don't even give your pins to your devices, you could be committing a criminal offence? Is this really the way of justice, the way of law? And the answer is, unfortunately, yes. What I've just described to you is known as Schedule 7 
of the anti-terror legislation, Schedule 7 of the Terrorism Act 2000. And what Schedule 7 does, it gives the police, the anti-terror police, the power to stop anyone who is um, at port, whether they're coming in or going out of the country. You can stop anybody. And it goes beyond that because, as some of you might have heard from previous shows when we talk about stop and search, um, there is a requirement for reasonable suspicion of a criminal offence having been committed or about to be committed or being committed at that time. And you will recall that from all of these other rights uh, shows that we've done for you on this bar FM, you're told that if the police stop you and want to search you, they have to have reasonable suspicion of something. They can't just stop you. Um, well, in Schedule 7, that power, uh, or right even, does not exist. Under Schedule 7, there's no need to suspect anything. The police do not have to give a single reason as to why um, they are stopping you. We don't need to give a reason or have a reason. It can be quite simply the fact that they have decided to. And that creates a lot of concern. Because as we've seen, if we look, go back to the example of uh, stop and search, with stop and search, we have already seen statistics about how a black male is eight times more likely to be stopped and searched on the street by the police uh, in comparison to their white, so white, white counterparts. But that's with the safety mechanism built in of reasonable suspicion. So where the police have to justify that stop and search by showing due cause for reasonable uh, suspicion. Yet, despite that safety mechanism being present in ordinary stop and searches, we still see a high number of uh, people from black and Asian and minority ethnic groups being stopped more often than their white counterparts. And that has caused concern across the country of race discrimination. And that's with the safety mechanism. And just taking one step previous to that, let's not forget where the stop and search uh, powers came in from. The stop and search powers came in uh, from uh, the PACE, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, in the early 80s. And it came in after a few years. I mean, I'm, I'm not, off the top of my head, it was literally two or three years of no such legal power existing. And the reason no such legal power existed then was because prior to that, there was a stop and search power that existed under different legislation, and it was used during the race riots that took place in the early 80s. And when it was used, it was highly criticised as being used in a racist way. And high levels, mass levels of activism took place across the country, protests and demonstrations, etc., against that. And when the government came under pressure, that legislation was scrapped, and then under pace, it was 
brought back in again. Police and Criminal Evidence Act stands for PACE, which is a short acronym that we use to describe it. And under PACE, we now have stop and search, which with the safety mechanism of reasonable suspicion. And yet, as I was just demonstrated, there is still concern that its implementation has still got racial undercurrents. Yet, in the anti-terror legislation, we now have a similar type of stop and search or stop and in interrogate or stop and interview, however you wish to put it, at the airports, at ports, um, which does not even have that safety mechanism. So the question that a lot of people ask is, well, what happened to all the lessons that we learned? Or what happened to all the concerns that we've had over all of these years of the dangers of stop and search and the, and the fact that it's open to abuse and discrimination? Why have we suddenly done a U-turn and done away with it? And what happens next, as I said, under Schedule 7? Not only can we stop you, they can ask you questions. Now, in law, in the Human Rights Act, in legislation going back, there has always been a key principle of the right not to self-incriminate. As I said, that, that right ex has always existed in many different shapes and forms, and it's existed um, in particular um, in the European legislation, the European Articles of Human Rights, uh, where you have a right not to self-incriminate, and then that is implemented in different shapes and forms in various legislation in each country. An example of the right not to self-incriminate is the traditional no-comment interview, because people have seen this on TV and been through it themselves, and they do find it strange. When someone's sitting in an interview room and they're asked questions, and they have the ability to say no comment, it doesn't feel natural. Because when someone asks you a question, a natural response normally is to answer the question. It doesn't feel natural to just turn around and say no comment. But we've seen the development of the use of the, the no comment strategy. But where does it come from? It comes from the basic principle of the right to not to self-incriminate. So what that means is that within ordinary legislation, you have the right subject to a few exceptions, which I'll touch on. But generally speaking, you have the right where if you're asked a question that you don't have to answer it, particularly if there's a risk of you incriminating yourself. Because the basic principle is that whoever is accusing you of a crime or some sort of wrongdoing needs to prove it. The accuser needs to bring evidence to prove that the allegation against somebody has some some foundation, some basis that uh, has not just been made up. And that's not something modern and new in British legislation. If you look back even at many other cultures and religions around the world, in particular if you look at the Muslim uh, history and the uh, emergence and development of Sharia law, and you look at early uh, jurisprudence, uh, and, and criminal law in, in the Muslim world, and we're talking 1,400 years ago now, even there, and you, I'm sure many of you are aware, when allegation is made, and the allegation alone is not enough, 
person bringing the allegation, the accuser, has to bring evidence, evidence in the form of witness testimonies or other evidence to show that what they are saying can be proven. So it shows that the right not to self-incriminate is an ancient right, I would say, has existed in many shapes and forms across many different uh, cultures across the world, including our own. And yet today, in 2018, well, we're in 2019 now, we are in a state where the right to not self-incriminate has now been taken away in part in some legislation, in particular in Schedule 7 of the anti-terror legislation, because if you do not answer the question, if you do not, if you answer no comment, you or stay silent, you are committing a criminal offence. You have to answer the questions, and then from that flows the other <coughs> points that I mentioned earlier, such as providing your PIN and passcodes to your mobile phones and devices. And so, some of you may think, well. What's the big deal? It only it's only in the arena of terrorism, you know, for those extremists. Well, the big deal is this. I've just set out in detail how stop and search, traditional stop and search in this country has evolved, has got a safety mechanism of in it of reasonable suspicion. And yet we still see a high level of people from black, Asian, minority, ethnic groups being stopped regularly to be searched. And there is a high level of concern across the country that there is discrimination at hand in the way the stop and search works. I've just explained to you how Schedule 7 of the Terrorism Act works. And what did we hear at the end of 2018? We heard a proposal being bandied about in Parliament that the police need more powers to deal with crime and that one of the proposals is to do away with the requirements of reasonable suspicion in the PACE, Police Criminal Evidence Act, the ordinary street stop and search. So what's going on? We've just seen the history of how we are, where we are today with stop and search. We've seen the concerns raised by all sorts of human rights groups as to the for implementation of stop and search. Indeed, the IOPC, the Independent Office for Police Complaints, is currently doing an independent investigation into police forces' use of stop and search to establish whether there is a racist narrative in play. And this was all because of a story where in London last year, two young black males um, touched hands as they greeted each other and suddenly they were surrounded by police and searched. And that was their basis. There was no criminal offence reported or seen to have been committed. Yet, these two black males were su subjected to a stop and search simply because of what they were perceived to be because of their race. And now we're hearing a proposal to get rid of that safety mechanism. 
So where does that come from? It's come from the fact that another piece of legislation already exists where that reasonable, reasonable suspicion, safety mechanism is not present. So what has happened is the mere existence of that is giving the principle of not having of it not being a necessity to have such a safety mechanism being rolled out to other legislation. So now what started off in the world of anti-terror legislation can now be seen as potentially creeping in to the world of ordinary stop and searches which take place on the street, which target everybody and in primary target black Asian minority ethnics. So I hope that gives an illustration of how if legislation is not challenged, then the repercussions of that can come out and move on into other legislation and affect everybody. And with Schedule 7, what are the concerns? Well, the government's own independent terrorism reviewer, Max Hill QC, last year, said... A couple of things. One thing he said about Schedule 7 in particular is that statistically more brown people are being stopped and subject to, subjected to Schedule 7 interviews than any other group. And that's a fact. So we actually have got a situation where the colour of your skin could be an increased reason why you could be stopped at an airport subject to Schedule 7, while your family could be subjected to that, while your privacy could be invaded, while you might miss your flight and have your holiday ruined, all because of the colour of your skin, your religion, or your perceived religion. There have been complaints which came out over the last few years where people were subjected to Schedule 7 interviews, not because they actually were Muslim, but because it was assumed that they might be because of the colour of their skin or their name. Not everyone who is of brown skin or everyone who has a certain name is necessarily Muslim. You can have people with Muslim-sounding names who originate from the Middle East, but they might be Christian or they might be of no faith. But to the ignorant and to the racist, it's hard to distinguish, isn't it? To the ignorant and to the racist... You know, if they see a Sikh person on the street, they'll assume he's a Muslim or he's Pakistani. There's been examples of Sikh people in America and England being attacked by racist, ignorant people who assumed that they are attacking Muslims. And that's again why Islamophobia, discrimination in all its forms has to be challenged. Because when it's not challenged and it's let out of the box, it has the potential of affecting everybody affecting people who are not from that uh, protected group um, uh, and are being targeted even by mistake you know racism discrimination it is a disease and it is a disease which is not just on the street <clears throat> but unfortunately it's a disease which we see time and time again in institutions and that is where the terminology institutional racism comes from where institutions have certain 
things built into them as part of their culture where people might not even realise it, but simply from the way they are operating, it can be perceived as discriminatory. Discriminatory on the grounds of race, discriminatory on the grounds of religion, or other characteristics um, which are protected under the Equality Act. So that gives an example of how Schedule 7 works. And, but why am I bringing it up now? The reason I bring it up now is because, as I said at the start of the show, this year is going to be an interesting year. We keep hearing about Brexit and the potential for a new election. Yes, all of that, you know, are, are, the cards are on the table and it could be happening. But what is also happening this year is the new Counter-Terrorism and Security Bill 2018. It's making its passage through Parliament as we speak. It's in its last stages. And when that stage concludes, it will become law. And so many of you will ask, why are you so concerned about this? And we have reached the end of the first part of the show. And in the second part of the show, I'm going to go into detail about what the Counterterrorism and Security Bill 2018 is, what the concerns on the ground are, by Muslim and non-Muslim organisations and what this could mean for communities and people in England going forward. So please stay tuned and uh, tune into the second half of the show after the break. And I'll see you soon. Assalamu alaikum. You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programmes from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamualaikum and welcome back to the Ask Your Lawyer show. I'm your host, Latik Malik, uh, and we are kicking off 2019 with a toolkit show. That's right, a toolkit show, which is a one-on-one show with myself and you, the viewers, the listeners, um, discussing an area of law. And today we are discussing terrorism legislation. In the first part of the show, I discussed Schedule 7 of terrorism legislation, uh, the Terrorism Act, uh, 2000 and basically just setting out what our concerns are with that um, and how there are genuine human rights concerns with some of the legislation out there. Now at, towards the end of the show, of the first part of the show, I s- informed you of why I'm concerned in that we have got um, new legislation coming out this year called the Counterterrorism and Security uh Currently, it's called the Counter and Security Bill uh, 2018, um, and that's because it hasn't received royal ascension yet. It's not a law as yet, but it's passing through Parliament. And this bill, when it comes into power, uh, will bring forth more changes and increase concerns that already exist. Now, whilst I'm talking, can I just remind everybody, this is a live show. This is your show. If you have any questions or concerns or comments, please call in 01582481822. That's 01582481822. You can also text in on 0779481822. That's 0779481822. You can also text message in on the same number. Okay, so... First of all, let's cover this in detail. What is a bill? Now, a bill is how 
laws are made in this country. So, if people in government wish for there to be a law that says X, Y, Z, they have to propose it as a bill. They have to have it drafted by their lawyers or whoever. And then it has to go through the two houses of parliament. You have the House of Lords and the House of Commons. This is what the um, parliament in this country is made up of. The House of Lords and the House of Commons. So it travels through the House of Commons first. And the House of Commons are where the elected officials of this country sit. So, as many of you are aware, there are MPs in every single town and city in this country. And MP stands for Member of Parliament. Those MPs sit in what's known as the House of Commons. And they um, will be the first group of people to look at any new bill which has been proposed uh, to become law. And it passes through there. And it goes through various stages. And in the House of Commons, first stage, second stage, <coughs> a reading stage, and third stage, etc. Once it's gone through the House of Commons, it then goes through to the House of Lords. And the House of Lords are made up of lords, peers, who have been selected um, by uh, uh, the uh, establishment of this country, by the government, by... The, um, uh, the Queen even, the, so you do not vote on who becomes a Lord. Um, and that is whom the House of Lords is made up of. And then they go through the same thing. They look at the legislation and it goes through a process there. They have, you know, first reading, second reading, third reading, sitting, etc., and then at the end of that process, the purpose of that process is for the changes to be made. So a proposer may propose a piece of legislation, but as it travels through um, the two um, houses, um, what happens, it, might, it will get tweaked as people in the House of Commons and the House of Lords make comments on it of parts they don't agree on or agree with. And... They have votes and all the rest of it and discussions about it. So at, by the end of the process, there might be changes made to that, which, uh, and so it might be in a different shape and form at the end of the passage process, as it pass, pass, uh, goes through the passage of Parliament, as to when it was first um, uh, put in place. So going back to this, the Counterterrorism and Border Security Bill is the legislation that we're talking about, which is going through. As I've said earlier on the show, this um, legislation has been widely criticised uh, by many organisations, uh, many human rights organisations. And the concern, and the concern that there is, is that this legislation will have disproportionate impacts on Muslim communities, on ethnic communities, um, black and Asian communities. And in particular, it is another erosion of human rights. It is that it's open to abuse and could end up creating a situation where innocent people who are not criminals could end up becoming criminalised because it is so such a widely uh, drafted piece of legislation. Now, interestingly, 
if you go to the parliament website and look at who proposed this, who's the sponsor of this uh, legislation, one of the sponsors is Sajid Javid, the Tory um, uh, current um, home office, head of home office, uh, MP Sajid Javid. And to me personally, this is another example of why you cannot judge people by their race and assume by their race that they're bad or similarly assume by their race that they're good. This is a legislation which is highly controversial, which human rights organisations are extremely concerned about affecting brown people and Muslims. And one of the sponsors for it is a brown person, is a Muslim, someone by the name of Sajid Javid. And so I want you to keep that in mind, that you cannot think that simply some because someone might be the same religion as you or not, or the same race as you or not, that they are going to be on a certain narrative. You have to look at individuals as human beings and make your own decision on what they are really about not based on the race or religion, because we see, have seen many examples of black and brown people or Muslims uh, of being, in, you know, acting in a way that is simply injustice. And similarly, non-Muslims, uh, people who are not brown or black, acting in, in the way of justice. You know, it is really the individual thing. So this is one thing I just wanted to highlight there. Secondly, where are we at with this? As I said, it's already passed through the House of Commons. It's now in the House of Lords. And in the House of Lords, it's going to have its third and final reading on the 15th of January 2019, which is basically next week. After that final reading, if it is felt that this should continue and carry on, it will then receive royal assent. So what does that mean? Well, it means that an announcement will be made in both houses by the Lord Speaker in the Lords and the Speaker in the Commons that this uh, bill has been given royal assent. Royal assent is like royal permission by the Queen that it can now become law. And as soon as that's done, this legislation will either become law straight away or it will become law uh, on a future date. But that is uh, how the passage works. So the next question is, uh, what are the concerns? Now, if you just bear with me, I'm just going to be opening... Well, I had a document open here. Bear with me. See where technology works. It's brilliant. Now it's gone. Brilliant. Okay, it's opening up now. Let's have a quick look. Okay. Right. So, yeah, it's okay. It's not the radio technology. It's my own technology that's not working. I had one of the um, uh, helpers in the radio station 
coming to assist. Uh, really are excellent here. Um, but now it's one of my own things. So what have we got in the CTS bill, which is going to be of concern? Let's have a quick look. These are just the headlines. There's, there's many more concerns, but these are just the headlines that are in there. So first of all, Clause 1 of the CTS bill talks about criminalisation of expression or inquiry. So what is the critique about this clause? The critique is this, that not only does the proposed provision extend... Uh, it's like we have a call coming in. Hang on a second. I'm really confused. This call's coming in. I'm not sure if it's a call into the studio or if it's a call... Uh, to one of the other systems okay i'm going to ignore that then sorry <coughs> so um clause one clause one criminalizes expression or inquiry and the concern about this is this that the proposed uh the proposal under this legislation is to extend criminal law to cover uh, mere expression and it also lowers uh, the threshold for what amounts to criminality by removing the requirement of intent and replacing it with sheer recklessness. Now, recklessness is a much lower burden uh, threshold in a, a criminal law. And historically, it's been uh, the position that recklessness is not appropriate legal test for speech crime because ultimately that's what it is so what they're basically saying here is under the new law is that if you say something and to express and if you express a view you don't have to have the intention to express a view that is criminal you just have to be reckless to it and one of the critiques of this is that recklessness is not a le appropriate legal test for speech crime because it's normally applied to actions that are themselves within the realm of crim criminality. So, for example, if you hit someone <coughs> or lie to someone, deceive someone, then there have, there's a nexus there between action and consequence which um, exists um, for, for that sort of conduct. Clearly, if you hit someone, you have the intention of hitting them. Um, or you're reckless to them getting hit, it makes sense for that to be a crime. But speech naturally does not exist in the realm of criminality. If I'm speaking to somebody, the fact that I'm speaking is not in itself wrong. Hitting someone, for example, is in itself wrong. Deceiving someone, for example, is in itself wrong. And therefore having recklessness as being part of the mental state required for that hitting someone or deceiving someone amounting to a criminal offence is understandable. But then to implement that into speech is not. And it also is criticised uh, and stated that it, it um, creates ambiguity as to what type of speech constitutes an unlawful expression of support uh, and therefore criminal. And the reason for that is this. Does this mean then, potentially, that if people are having an academic debate where one group is speaking uh, in favour of the deprescription of a proscribed organisation and the other is speaking against. Under that, are we then, if that in debate in itself is criminal, are we not then impeaching people's right to free speech? And then is that not a breach of human rights 
and Article 10 of the European uh, Convention on Human Rights in respect of freedom of expression. Further, the other point, and this is an important point, criminal law already exists, which makes it an offence to support uh, or to provide support for terrorism or proscribed organisations. So where is the necessity and justification for now bringing something else in on top? Just as I said in the first part of the show, Max Hill QC, who is the government's own independent terrorism legislation reviewer, made a few interesting points during his term in that role. And at one point, he actually said that the current state of anti-terror legislation, and this isn't verbatim, this is a summary of what he said, that the current state of it is such that it is equivalent to a sledgehammer being used to crack a nut. And this is an example of that. Where legislation already exists, which makes it a criminal act to provide support for terrorism or proscribed organisation, then what necessity is there to open it up further and add more legislation on top? It already exists. And without the safety mechanism of having intent to do so and reducing it to recklessness, what, what it, there is a concern of is that you're opening that up to abuse. Again, we then move on to publication of images. So publication of images is going to be a new offence to cover photographs taken in a private place. Currently, the law makes an offence to wear clothes or display an article likely to raise suspicion of membership of a prescribed group. So a prescribed group is an organisation which has been prescribed, which is under a government list, a legislative list, as an unlawful, illegal organisation. You are not allowed to promote or be part of an organisation in this country which is on the prescribed list. Now, what this says is, um, this is now going to expand to, if you have a photograph in a private place, then this can be also amounting to a criminal offence of publication of images. And this um, proposed amendment allows the state to judge behaviour which takes in place in privacy and does not intend to incite criminality. So, so what someone's doing in their own four walls, they're not tr doing anything to any member of the public, it's their own personal beliefs that they, you know, or interests that they've got. This is also potentially going to be a criminal offence. And the concerns that this has is that there could be a mistake for a reference uh, for endorsement, an irony for sincerity, or childish misdirection for a genuine threat. It's not easy to place what happens in privacy in four walls into the correct context. It can be easily misinterpreted. And of course, such a um, offence creates problems for journalists, archivists and researchers. Researchers, archivists, journalists who are looking for certain material to publish or do work on, they might be in possession of images which suddenly amount to criminal offences. And an example of this was again given by the Independent Review of Terrorism Legislation, Maxwell QC, who said that what Clause 2, unamended as it is, says about those who seek to display historical images of individuals working for organisations that were prescribed years ago whereas a matter of historical recording and nothing more, given lack of clarity as to what will be caught by this offence, 
and the potential very wide reach of Clause 2, it risks a disproportionate interference with Article 10. Again, Article 10 is the European Co uh, uh, Convention on, on Human Rights uh, and basically is the article associated with freedom of expression. And another problem with the same new clause is that you don't have to be part of a prescribed group to, or support it or intend to support it. It's just that the circumstances of the publication should arouse suspicion that the person is a member or supporter of the group. So it's, it's very, very wide and very concerning. Now, view material of the internet, clause free of the CTS bill. We've always seen concerns of um, you know, Big Brother watching you when you're on the internet and, and it's already a criminal offence to download information which could be useful for terrorism. So that already exists. But the new clause free is going to criminalise people who use the internet to view a document or record on three or more different occasions uh, something that is likely to be useful to a person preparing or committing an act of terrorism. The government has now replaced that, which is known as a free clicks requirement with a one click. So the problem with this is, and a very good example of this is given by the human rights organisation known as Liberty, and this is an example that they give. Well, a teenager who foolishly clicks on terrorist propaganda out of curiosity, an academic who accesses an issue of Inspire in the course of their research, a journalist who watches an ISIS uploaded video to geolocate war crimes would all potentially be caught by this offence. So would an activist who trawls forums to monitor far-right organisations or an imam who listens to a broadcast to a prescribed group to better understand and rebut claims they make. All of these people with genuine reasons to look at such material could now be committing criminal offences under this new potential legislation. And what this means is important activities such as scholarship, journalistic pursuit, non-violent political activism and religious inquiry are all at risk of being chilled by this offence. And it's just really, really well stated. Then we have clause four, travel to a designated area. And this means that if you enter or remain in a designated area overseas, you are committing an act of uh, well, well, effectively, commit an act of terrorism because you're in breach of the anti-terror legislation. So what this means is that if someone's a vulnerable person has been groomed or otherwise convinced to travel under false pretenses to a certain area, and once they are there, they are unable to leave because that area has now been designated uh, uh, as a, an area where nobody's allowed to go to, they become trapped. They, become, they would be too scared to come back because they couldn't, if it came out that they'd been to that location, simply the presence of being there, not whether they've done anything wrong or not, simply their presence there could uh, be enough for this to be a criminal act. I mean, how does that leave people who have family in designated areas or people doing aid work in designated areas? There is genuine concern that this... Again, without any need for criminal attention or justification, and there's no justification uh, why such a provision is even necessary. Biometric data under new terror legislation. Currently, we have already seen major concerns of the retention of information in the National Police database. Um, after many years of campaigning 
there was a legis- change legislation where if you were not charged with an offence, you could apply for your DNA and fingerprints, etc., to be deleted, which would be normally be, have been taken if you were arrested and interviewed for an offence. Now they wish to reverse that for anyone arrested under anti-terror legislation. So again, it raises concerns of human rights, that people, innocent people, are going to have their fingerprints and DNA taken and kept on record, even though they have done nothing wrong and not, and not committed any offence. Is that right? Is that just? That's another concern that has been raised. Now, prevent. We've all heard of prevent. We've heard of many stories. We've Especially in Luton, we've had issues, and we've had issues, and we still do have issues. Um, it was amazing how in the at the committee stage of this legislation, the government referred to the prevent horror stories as myths, and they ignored the previous concerns raised by organisations such as Liberty, by the government's own independent review of terrorism legislation. The Home Office uh, Affairs Committee, the JCHR, the UN Special Rapporteur, his concerns on prevent and, and, and the relevant stories that have come out. Um, the National Union of Teachers, National Union of Students, the, the, the House of Lords uh, members from the Conservative parties, Labour, Liberal Democrats and Muslim groups and organisations have all given examples of stories of prevent going wrong. And what the government said in this debate is it's all myths, they don't exist. Now that doesn't really instill confidence because we know they do exist. The majority of us have ex- have no people who've experienced these prevent horror stories firsthand. And for the government to push through changes in legislation and further changes in prevent and to state, oh, it's all just a big myth, it's not very helpful at all. What it shows is a complete disregard for considering, listening and seeing what is actually happening on the ground and just carrying on like a bull in a china shop, making changes as they see fit. And, I mean, to this day, the Home Office has not published the data necessary to establish whether Prevent is disproportionately impacting those of a certain ethnicity or faith, despite... Uh, calls to do so and the new prevent strategy will allow local authorities as well as the police to refer people uh, to the channel program now we actually run out of time and just to uh, just to finish off schedule seven which i already went into detail in the first part of the show that is also going to have a change and that is going to be that even the home office front uh, uh, line staff uh, at border would have the same powers to do schedule seven interviews as the police currently do so expanding those powers in a very scary way. Now, the reason I'm telling you all of this is because you need to know this legislation is coming out this year. We need to act. We need to challenge it. Write letters to your MPs. Write letters to your lords. Um, and get awareness out there that these are genuine concerns here. And if and when the legislation does come in play, we need to be fully aware of what our legal rights are and what our human rights are. If we don't stand for justice, nobody else will. Zatik Malik signing out. Speak to you soon. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Why not tune in to our live stream at inspirefm.org and follow and subscribe to our social media platforms at InspireFM Luton.